Right, well, as, as Pete said, my name's Ian. Uh, looking around the room, some of you I've known for nigh on 30 years. Others of you will be thinking, who is this strange bloke? Uh, I'm one of your brothers from the north, so I normally worship up there with the north communities. As I said, I've been part of all nations and previously Brickhill Baptist Church for almost 30 years now. You may see my wife Caroline playing fiddle here once or twice in the past, son Chris at Warwick University in his second year. But um, I just have a passion this morning for carrying on what we've left off. God is good, isn't he? We've talked about names the whole time, really. And in what I've got to share with you in a minute, at the center of it is a name. And the name is I Am. And we'll unpack that as we go along. But first of all, I'll just pray. Father God, thank you so much for what you've spoken to us already. We pray now that by your Holy Spirit, you'd continue speaking to hearts and minds and that none of us would leave here changed, Father, but rather would leave inspired, encouraged to see your word spread through this town and beyond. Amen. Amen. Right, so we're carrying on with our series through John, and we've now reached John chapter 18. So if you've got a Bible and want to follow along, we're starting from verse 1 in John chapter 18. And this is the, um, the bit in the story. We're approaching Easter as Jesus is arrested uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. So it should be up on the screen with any luck. Yep, there we go. Oh, this is going to be fun. I've now reached that time of life where I'm into my first... This is the first time I've preached with very focal glasses. So if, if you see me doing this a bit, I'm just getting used to them. So I've only read them a couple of weeks. I've done this before. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, wait. I might have to print it out bigger next time. <laughs> anyway, John 18, starting at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who portrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, who else but Simon Peter? But then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Amen. Now, this passage is ripe with imagery. John, as you, I'm sure you know, is probably the most theological of the Gospels. Every word you sense is chosen carefully. He's crafting a, a story with the facts. 
And so when Jesus went from the city of Jerusalem to this garden, he, would have, he went through the Kidron Valley, he would have crossed over the brook Kidron. And this small stream was actually the drainage channel from the temple. The time was Passover. The very stream he crossed over would have been red with the blood of Passover lambs. What a picture for Jesus that. Now, I read and how true it is. Apparently a census was taken 30 years after Jesus' um, Jesus's time. It's recorded by the historian um, Josephus that the number of lambs slain during Passover was 256,000. No idea if that's true or not. But can you imagine this vivid red river that Jesus had to cross? And then John tells us of Jesus entering a garden. And you could see this again as the second Adam re-entering the garden, ready to do battle with Satan. The first Adam waited for Satan to come to him. But in this passage, this Adam, Jesus, as we'll see again and again, takes the initiative. He's the one in charge. Now, the gospel writer John is keen on this imagery of garden. He notes that Jesus' death and resurrection also took place in a garden. You can read that in different parts of John, John 19. Now, the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And then after the resurrection, Jesus said to to, to Mary, who comes to him, Woman, why are you meeting? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, John writes... So the shame, the fall which started in the Garden of Eden is dealt with once and for all in another garden. Do you see the symmetry, the beauty of it all? But actually, I've just almost put that into the preface as a taster because that's not what was on my heart when I came to this passage. They're not what really caught me up. And so to move on to those points, I I thought we'd start, I'd make a point by having a a very brief and very small and and probably very unfair quiz. So if you can put the next slide up. Does anyone know who all of those people are? And I have been slightly unfair. Does anybody know who any of them are? Yeah, you're right. The the ones on the right, just to be clear, are my mum and dad. (laughs) That's slightly unfair, but well done, Rich. Any idea? Now, I, I, I work as an automotive analyst. I love cars. If I said to you, Mini, anyone want to have a guess who the chap on the left is? Isagonis. Exactly. So, Alec Isagonis, sort of give him his full name. Um, Sir Alexander Arnold Constantine Isagonis, CBE, FRS, RDI. There you go. Titled man. So, he designed the Mini in 1959. I'm an engineer by training. I love cars. One of my earthly heroes, you might say, this man. Second lady, I didn't know as much till recently. Only, only launched, she actually died only a few weeks ago. Any idea who she is? She worked for absolutely... She's Catherine Johnson. She was an American mathematician whose calculations of orbital mechanics as a NASA employee were critical to some of those first space flights. And she was actually portrayed in the 2016 film Hidden Figures. So, but she, she died on the 24th of February at the grand old age of 101. And then you have my parents. Now, why am I starting with this? And I said it was very unfair. Because I was the only person in the, in the room who knew those three because they were my choices. And when I started looking at this passage, one of the first things that struck me with my, an hour, perhaps 21st century idiosyncrasies, is that Jesus had to ask the advancing crowd, whom do you seek? 
I mean, anybody who does anything nowadays, you know who they are. Their face is everywhere. But of course, we, we have no cameras. We have no TV crews. We have no Facebook. They don't know who Jesus is. They might have heard of him, but they've got no idea which one of these blokes he is. And actually today, it's very easier for us to think that we know people. When I've read biographies on Isagonis, I know a little bit about it. That was actually a while ago, so don't test me. I might have forgotten. <laughs> but out of all those, the only people I know are my parents. And even recently, we've had the tragic death of Caroline Flack. Now, as a middle-aged man who doesn't watch much telly, I had no idea who she was. I'll admit, if you put a photo up, I wouldn't have recognized her. But millions of people, it seems, felt they knew her. Otherwise, it turns out, they didn't really. They just knew the projection of her. So that got me thinking, how do we know Jesus? How do you know Jesus? So the arresting soldiers, they've probably heard of him but they clearly didn't know him. But then, then something changed. When they answered, we, we seek Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus replied, in the version that I read from the ESV, I am he, or perhaps more accurately translated from the original text, just I am, capital I, capital A, capital M. I am the greatest name of all. And with this statement, many commentators, theologians, and for what it matters, me, see Jesus consciously and provocatively proclaiming he was God. And it connected his words to the many previous I am statements we see in the Gospel of John. Many of those are different things. I am the bread of life. I am whatever. But perhaps most famously in John 8, 58, where a crowd starts arguing about Jesus and who he is, and Jesus concludes with the statement, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. And with that, he has to do a runner. Well, a disappearance trick, not trick, because the crowd just goes mad at that. They just can't cope with that. And we see again, when Jesus speaks those words, I am in the garden, look at the impact. We have in the, in the ESV, it's described as a band of men that come for him. The Greek word used, if it's used technically correctly, that means 600 men. Might not be technically correct. But even some of the looser translated usages of that word suggests there's at least 200 coming for him from the most powerful military nation on earth at the time. And yet when Jesus says, I am, they draw back <laughs> and fall to the ground. They knew who he was now. So to answer my question, perhaps, how do you know Jesus? Then one answer must certainly be when you hear him speak when you hear him declare who he is. So that question is often the way with my mind, leads to more questions. Have you heard him speak? And if so, have you responded? 
Now, I know many of you, but I don't know some. Today may be the first time you're hearing him speak to you, the first time you're hearing him declare, I am, over your life. Maybe the nth time where N is a number that gets very large as the years go by. But there's still a response to be had each day. You see, Jesus does speak to us. Scripture makes that very, very clear. Earlier in John's Gospel, Jesus is recorded as saying, this is in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. Like Emma said, even I know their name. And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My sheep hear my voice. So my first challenge for you today is, are you listening to his voice? Are you hearing him? Are you building your sense of who he is and what he wants to do from spending time with him, getting to know him? We'll have time to press more into that at the end, actually. I'd love for us to pray together for each other to hear his voice, but we'll come back to that at the end. So the first way in which this passage challenged me was in how we know Jesus and how we're listening to him. The next challenge to me came from Simon Peter, and it's perhaps best summarized by the phrase, careful with that sword. (laughs) You see, Peter, ever the compulsive one, you have to love Peter, he leaps into action, and drawing his sword, he cuts off the right ear of Malchus. Now, I don't know about you, I doubt he was a particularly skilled swordsman. I doubt he aimed for the ear. I'll just slice the ear off. Now, he was probably going straight for the middle of the head and missed. Let's be honest about it, yeah? That's what he was after. Sorry, Rich, I don't want to decapitate you there or anything. but... (laughs) But Jesus rebukes him, tells him to put away the sword. Now, let's be clear, there's nothing wrong with having a sword. Scripture speaks of it both metaphorically and even literally. Of course, in the armor of God, we hear about the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And even in Luke's gospel, when he's, Jesus is saying what the disciples are going to need, he said, I sent, them out, I sent you out before with almost nothing. Now, buy a sword. I'm paraphrasing. But Jesus tells them, they say, oh, we've got two. And he goes, all right, probably enough. That's in Luke 22, if you want to look it up. So having a sword isn't a problem Using it at the wrong time, in the wrong place, in the wrong way is. Now, of course, we don't have, anyone brought a sword to church today? No? Anyone? I'll put it away. Anyone brought a phone to church today? That's probably our modern-day sword. We can do plenty of damage with those if we choose to these days. Of course, a lot we speak to each other, but in many ways we interact through different ways projecting our our voices and opinions on social media. And as I was looking at this, I came across a quote from the great American evangelist Billy Graham that he once said. He said, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and my job to love. I'll say that again. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and my job to love. What I so loved about what Chris just shared That same sense came through. You said, it's not our job to judge. You're there to love. They're living it out. Brilliant. 
And just as another example, has anyone watched the film Walk the Line, the biopic of Johnny Cash? Or am I the only one? We've got a few. There's a very painful scene in that. Um, a lady named June, now it's, I don't know how true it was, it's a dramatization of his life, but June Carter, she's another singer who toured with Johnny Cash and later married him, was doing some shopping in a, in a small store. She'd recently divorced her husband. The store manager approaches her, clearly recognizing who she is, and her face lights up in anticipation of a compliment or a, the approach from a fan. But what the store manager says is, and I'm not going to attempt the southern accent because it would be horribly wrong, but imagine in your head a southern accent, American accent. Divorce is an abomination. Marriage is for life. That's all she says to this woman. And her face crumples. I'm sorry I let you down, ma'am, she says, and scuttles away. Now, this isn't the time or place for a preach on divorce. Complex subject. What I can guarantee is that was wrong. That was a sword incorrectly wielded. It didn't encourage. It didn't build up. It destroyed. That was not love. Case is not abundantly clear. My point here is not about the rights of wrongs or divorce, but rather that our default position when challenged should always be one of love, of gentleness, as Chris has spoken about. There are many areas where it's so easy for all of us to fall short of the biblical ideal, but God always has a way back. Remember what it says in Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, sisters for that matter as well, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him. Do you know the next word? Gently. You who are spiritual should restore him gently. And it's really interesting and really sobering to look at the language used by Jesus to different types of people. Listen to these two verses. Jesus both speaking, uh, each time Jesus speaking. First quote, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? The second quote, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, anyone, any idea who the first, who the, um, the go to hell essentially quote, who was that spoken to? The Pharisees, the scribes. And the I don't condemn you was spoken to the woman caught in adultery. Jesus saved his harshest words for those who professed to know it all, who spoke judgment and condemnation on others, but in reality were hypocrites themselves. But for those who came to him broken, he showed nothing but grace. And I find that a huge challenge. In case you need any more convincing, listen to these famous words from 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing." Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. 
It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So brothers and sisters, we have the most amazingly powerful sword in the word of God. But let's ensure that we always wield it with love. Agreed? Now, if you're anything like me at this point, you might be thinking, ouch, I'm in trouble. I'm not good at listening to you, Lord. I've cut off way too many ears in my time. And actually, I've had my own ear cut off a few times, and that still smarts, quite frankly. That hurts. Well, here's the good news and my final point. Jesus overcomes our mistakes. As I said at the beginning, we need to point out in this passage that Jesus was always, always, always in control. There may have been hundreds of men from the most powerful military force on the planet at the time coming for him, but he allowed himself to be arrested. We've seen that simply declaring who he is caused the soldiers to stumble and fall. And I haven't spoken of Judas. I haven't spoken of the betrayal because here in John's account, it's, it's a side note. Far from center stage, John makes it abundantly clear who's in control. This isn't precipitated by Judas. This is Jesus doing what he knows he needs to do for you and for me. And actually, Matthew's account of the same events, after Peter attacks and does the sword thing, Jesus says, do you think I can't appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? Now, a legion is 72,000. Isaiah 37 records one angel killing 185,000 soldiers in one night. I'm an engineer, I like maths, so here we go. 12 legions of angels multiplied by 185,000 comes out at 13.3 billion people. Now, the best estimates of the population of the earth at the time was 300 million. So at the click of his fingers, the call of his voice, Jesus could have called out angels to wipe over out the entire world over 40 times. That's the power that he had. Make no mistake, Jesus is in control. And therefore, he can easily overcome our mistakes. Now, we don't read it in this account, but in Luke's account, we see that after the ear was chopped off, Jesus heals Malchus. In fact, even the fact that we know Malchus's name, many suggest that's because he actually became a Christian afterwards and joined the band. That's why they know who he was. We don't know that for certain. That's one theory. So Jesus fixed Peter's immediate mistake, but then, of course, for Peter, things went from bad to worse. It's not long after these events that, Jesus, that Peter finds himself denying Jesus three times. Don't know who he is. Got no idea what you're talking about. And then what probably would have been bleeped out if it had been a dramatization of an oath. You know, I've got no idea what you're talking about. And yet Jesus restores him. Jesus restores him. And then, of course, the most marvelous overcoming of them all. Jesus defeats death and sin. The cross that he, he, he here allows himself to be led to doesn't defeat him, but rather he rises from the grave and lives forevermore. Hallelujah. 
no matter what problems you've come with here today, Jesus is bigger. He can overcome. So to wrap this up, what stood out to me as I worked through this passage over the last few weeks was was not the imagery as powerful as that is, but it's that name, that voice, the I am. And my burden this morning was to just almost say that over you again and again to get you have a sense of that. I am. And in that, there's some battles we don't need to fight. We need to be very careful with the power Jesus has given to us. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and my job to love. Let's not fall short on love. And no matter what problems we have, individually, corporately, as a nation, as a planet, we have a few of those at the moment, don't we? Jesus is bigger. He can overcome. Amen. Now, we've got a few minutes. I'd love to, us to pray for each other. So if you want prayer, I'm happy to pray for you no matter what. So if what I say now doesn't fit with where you are, come and get prayer anyway. You may have heard something I didn't. But what I particularly would like to pray for is those who want to know the voice of Jesus more, who want to respond to the I am. That might be for the first time. That might be for the millionth time, as I said. But if you know today that God's been speaking to you and you want to respond to that, I'd love you to come to the front. Actually, um, Ben, could you come? Ben. Dynamic duo. (laughs) You come back. So if if you want to have some of the I am prayed over you this morning, I'd love to do that. And the second group I'd love to pray for is what I've, I've um, characterized as victims of the sword. You may know that you've done damage to others and you want to come and say sorry. Or you may have a few sword wounds yourself and you'd like some healing. If that's the case, we're now going to sing something. I have great faith. <laughs> but don't be shy. Come forward, please, now. Because I. One thing, if you get to know me better, you realize I'm, I'm an impatient person, one of my faults. <laughs> and um, those of you who are used to praying with people, if you could come forward as well and help pray for some of these folk, that would be great. And if you could lead us, and then we'll see what happens. Sound like a plan? Fantastic.